Hey, this is Ryan O'Callaghan, and you're listening to Level Playing Field. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Level Playing Field. This is my podcast. My name is Randy Boos, where I interview LGBT athletes and other sports personalities. This is the start of season two. I started this podcast back in March of 2019, and I had no fucking clue what I was doing. I have learned a little bit. I still have a ways to go, but I'm having fun doing it. I hope you enjoy what you hear. If you do like it, share it. If you do like it, share it. Tweet about it. Facebook about it. Write reviews on iTunes. Whatever you can to get the word out that this podcast exists. Speaking of season two, this episode I interview former National Football League player who spent time with the New England Patriots and the Kansas City Chiefs. His name is Ryan O'Callaghan. Ryan wrote a book called My Life on the Line, and it comes out on September 3rd, Amazon, Barnes Noble, wherever you get your books. We had a chat this past Thursday at the University of California in their athletic department in one of the video rooms, and it was a great chat. He gets a little dark. He has some dark moments in his life that he shares about in the book. We talk a little bit about it in the chat, but so just so you have a warning there. We do have some laughs, though, so it's not all depressing. It's actually a fun chat. I had a good time talking with him last week. Anyways, here's the episode with Ryan O'Callaghan. Enjoy. Hey, Ryan, welcome, and thank you for coming on my podcast. Absolutely. So like I said, the way I start is, what is the earliest memory you have as a child? That's a tough one. I've never thought about that before, but I think, um, for some reason, Disneyland comes to mind. We would go down there every year because my dad's mother lived um, outside of uh, that area, and it's not a specific memory, but just going to Disneyland as as a as a young kid um, and visiting my uh, grandma down there is probably the earliest memory. Um, I'd probably guess like four or five. Maybe that's late. That seems about right. What was it like growing up in Reading? Oh gosh, Reading uh, Reading hasn't changed all that much. Um, it's gotten bigger, but the mentalities really stayed the same. It, it's very conservative. Um, very blue collar. Uh, in the last ten years, it's gotten very religious with a with a cult that's moved to town. But um, really, yeah, they they you pay them uh, twelve thousand dollars a semester, and they teach you to pray cancer away. Um, you could pay them, and they'll make you not gay. And is it a church? Loosely, yes. It's a they call, they're a nonprofit. They're a church in the government's eyes, but they have a school of supernatural ministry, and they. Um, they, they really took off cause they've got this music, um, department where they produced music, Christian music. And one time Bieber tweeted something about it and then they really took off. And so Reading, uh, that's really what Reading's known for now, but it was, you know, my growing up, my dad ran a lumber company and there was, a, you know, the, the town itself was very outdoorsy and, um, conservative and even to this day there's a truck that drives around town with a confederate flag hanging out the ass of it and i'm not i'm not kidding it's it's funny because you think of california and you think it's just a completely liberal state but in reality it's two states there's the coast and then the, the inland like upper redding 
I'm pretty sure this is a fact that Shasta County, where Redding is, that Trump had a higher percent of vote there than Alabama. Like, it's that conservative. I have family there, but I haven't been to Redding in so long. It's shocking, too, because Megan Rapinoe's from Redding. Similar age, different high school, but all this stuff. She's been in the news a lot lately, and the, the response from people in Redding has just been hate-filled. Just, it's remarkable. Um, not just about the flag, but local news has been doing a lot of stories, and you look at the comments, and you just, you know, it's disgusting. They, they call on her and him, and it's, it's really bad. Yeah, and so, yeah, why do I live there? Eh. <laughs> that won't be long. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I have a couple older dogs, and I travel a lot. I know this sounds like an excuse, and it is, but traveling a lot and having family a mile away to be able to leave them with them, leave the dogs with them is convenient. You know, and if I moved to a bigger city and I'd have to get a house with a yard, and, you know, I'm not the type that wants to pay that much living somewhere. Do you think you'd move to a big city or stay small? Yeah, at some point, I, you know, my plans change. I, I typically live day to day, but the plan right now, as soon as the dogs pass away, I'll probably pick a spot, move, spend a year there, pick a new spot, move, and kind of... Really? You know, if I meet someone along the way and that changes, great. You know, I'm open to that, but um, yeah, I'd like to move around and find the perfect spot. I've been to every state but Alaska, so I'm pretty familiar with America, but... Uh, yeah, I'd like to live in different different areas. I'm surprised a big city's an option for you. The way you talk about that property you had in Kansas City, you seem to really love the outdoors and working on land, and it seems like big city wouldn't be a fit for you. Yeah, well, the, a lot of big cities, you can drive 10 minutes and you're out of the chaos. Sure. You know, New York City, no. L.A., no. But even like Kansas City, it's a big city, but... It doesn't take long to be in the country and, and away from it all. Um, I loved living in Kansas City. It was, you know, I missed the mountains in California, but uh, places like that, there's a lot to do and um, a lot of people and not too expensive to live. You know, I like places like Kansas City or Vegas. Um, I'd give L.A. a shot. I don't know. Outskirts of L.A. are are nice and less populous, for sure. Yeah, but, you know, I, I think, okay, if I'm going to live in L.A., I'm not going to live in West Covina. I'm going to live in West Hollywood or, or yeah. you know, around UCLA, around there. But uh, if I'm, if I'm going to live in the city, I'm going to live... Did you choose West Covina because of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? No, no. I, I was an ex of mine. I dated him for a couple of years. He was, okay. he, he was going to move to L.A., and I was willing to go with him. And I start looking at places to live, and I'm like... Okay, I got dogs. I'm gonna need a house with a yard. I'm looking in West Hollywood. It's like eight thousand a month. I'm like, okay, I don't want to spend that. And then it's like I got to go out to West Covina to get, you know, something reasonable. And we're not dating. He doesn't live in LA anymore. <laughs> yeah, I'm still in Reading. So, yeah. Let's go back to your childhood. Did you play sports? Were you interested in sports at all? Yeah, I, I was. I was always around sports because my dad officiated um, from long as I can remember. So he officiated football, basketball. He was an umpire. So I was always younger, dragged to these different things and, and uh, a lot of peewee football. Um, I didn't actually, I played one year of Little League Baseball in 1992 and I didn't really like it. Um, I think I played one year of City League Basketball and then I didn't play football until my freshman year of high school. Uh, I was always too big to play peewee football. And I didn't really want to play anyways. But uh, 
So yeah, I didn't. I didn't actually play football until high school. I, I, I never. Yeah, you know, like I said, I was always around sports, but yeah, I, I never loved it. And, and growing up younger, I wasn't f- really in the group of friends that were jocks and stuff. I was more around, you know, the band kids and the drama kids. So were you a theater kid? I didn't do any of that stuff, but that was kind of like so. My group of friends from elementary school, you know, and then we all went to the same junior high school. They all got into that, and I was still friends with them. Um, that changed in high school. I ended up hanging out with the jocks and stuff, and it ended up being a little more adventurous and fun. But uh, growing up when I was younger, you know, that was just the group I kind of got attached to. I want to start talking about the book. So let's jump to after you stopped playing football. Um, I had Sid Ziegler on my podcast on the first episode, and we brought you up. Yeah. My question is, so what made you go to Sid? How did you decide you want to tell the story? Yeah, so I, how did I find Sid? I think I was just Googling about gay athletes, just curious. And uh, I had already came out to family a few years before I reached out to Sid. Um, but I was interested, obviously, in other gay athletes, just trying to see who was out there. And that's how I fell upon out sports. And then I looked and who you know, was in charge of out sports and it was Sid and Jim. So I had, I had seen other guys come out like Michael and Jason and, um, but I reached out to Sid kind of as guidance because I had seen a lot of other athletes come out, um, using out sports as a, as a form of media to do that. And I liked their stories and what they did. So I, I, I messaged Sid and, um, he had recognized my name. Uh, I don't know if he truly believed it was really me. Um, and then we, we chatted, and then we ended up meeting and doing the story. And Oh, yeah. Well, he's a lifelong Patriots fan. Yeah. When he told the story, he was like, I know Orion on the Patriots. Yeah. It was – yeah. It, it, well, he, he ended up uh, finding out it really was me, and I think he was a little surprised. And um, but No, we, we, we hit it off, and uh, the story and all that was – was well done um and that turned into a into a friendship and I always knew I wanted to tell my story to the masses to try to help someone who might have been in my position or or, you know other athletes that or not even athletes just other people that could relate and want you know someone like me a masculine bigger gay man to look up to and um, because I never had that and uh after I came out publicly without sports you know, my story got picked up by basically everyone, and a literary agent reached out about a book deal. Um, we explored that, but we ended up going with a publisher that Sid found that who had done he'd done work with them before. And uh, so I saw the book as a great opportunity to um, raise money uh, for my charity, which I'm given scholarships and support to LGBT athletes. And that's through your foundation? That's my, yeah, my foundation is the Ryan O'Callaghan Foundation. It's rofdn.org. Um, and you're on Facebook? On Facebook as well. You can, yeah, follow message there. So yeah, I'm donating all of my proceeds from the book um, to my charity. And quite honestly, everything I do as far as outreach that's gay-related, you know, I, I don't know if I should say that, but I donate. It's funny because you still sometimes see uncomfortable. Are you uncomfortable? Oh, I'm 100% comfortable. What I'm not comfortable is profiting just because I'm gay. Just, you know, people do that. They're allowed to do that. But I feel much better about 
taken that money and giving it back to the community somehow instead of lining my own pockets with it. You know, I could do that. Other people do it, but... I think in the book, too, it goes through your generosity. I mean, yeah, sometimes you had different motives, but you've always appeared as a generous person with friends and neighbors and everyone else. Well, back then, I had a different motive, though. I would do ridiculous things to so people would talk about that instead of why I wasn't dating a girl on a Saturday night. You know, I, I would... But I am a generous person, you know, genuinely. So you meet with Sid. You have a connection. What is... What makes that final step? What makes you decide to write this book? Yeah, just wanting to get the story out and, and reaching people who maybe didn't hear it you know, the first time around when I came out publicly. And it was also a chance to go into more detail about well, myself and, and other people in my life and um, how they reacted, and, um, which overwhelmingly was positive. You know, there's a couple instances in the book I speak of where things didn't go exactly how I had anticipated or hoped, um, lost a couple friends, but the support I received after I came out was overwhelmingly positive um, from people that I never would have expected it. You know, the owner of the Patriots trying to call me when he was in Jerusalem and found out that I was gay. I never expected Mr. Kraft to do that or Mike Vrabel, a, a longtime uh, linebacker in the NFL, and now he's a head coach to, to call me. I hadn't talked to Mike since I retired and um, hell, I didn't know he had my number, but for him just to reach out and call and just show his support and um, things like that, that, you know, that goes a long way. And, and I don't think enough allies or, or just straight people that aren't allies understand how much support there is in the sports world for the community. Um, and hopefully writing my book, someone's going to see my book and see a photo of a of a football player in a Patriots uniform and maybe they don't you know, maybe they don't realize that there's gay football players. Who knows? You know, there's a lot of ignorant people out there. And, um, you know, I, I've been able to connect with quite a few of them. And hopefully people that haven't uh, heard of me will pick it up off the shelf and, uh, you know, learn something. It is a great read. You are so honest in this book. Yeah, I, I figured if you're going to write a book, you might as well put it all out there and be honest about it. Um, Obviously, this podcast is a lot about coming out. And so it's a big part of the story. But your book coming out is the smallest part, the, um, I wouldn't say less interesting, but there's so many other parts of this book. You figure the hurting yourself mentally, trying to add weight to appear straight so you don't have to like hide having a girlfriend. Um, you openly talk about smoking weed and the NFL comes out and says, no, you can't do that. But here, when you have injuries, take these narcotics, take these drugs to help your pain. When weed can do a better job with it, it could have helped you with your mind, too. Yeah, you can't have it's a joint. Hard. Yeah, as we talk about in the book, I, I couldn't smoke a joint, but they gave me nine refills of Vicodin in one month. It's like, it, it's, you know, priorities and, and figure out what's really a drug here. And um, things like that are, are changing, hopefully slowly. As states start to change laws, it's going to force the NFL to have to change their rules they have for players. Yeah, you would hope. Um you know, the, the NFL, you know, you got 32 owners and one commissioner, and it's hard for him to wrangle 32 different owners, and every state's different. So how do you have one policy for everyone when not every state's on board? And I'm in a union where we have drug-free calls. You have to take tests every year to, to prove you're not on drugs. Nevada has a lawsuit going on right now where people have started to sue about these drug test laws. Yeah. This might be in Nevada, but you figure 
what happens in Nevada can affect other states, California especially. Precedent is what matters. I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if there's already a lawsuit out there trying to get marijuana legal in the NFL, but, you know. It'll yeah, there, there are other. It's going to be decriminalized once that happens. It's just the next step. Yeah, I, I think naturally it will just because the whole reefer madness thing, all those people that were around for that, you know, they're no longer with us and kind of even with, I mean, go to gay rights in general, the people with those old ideas of, you know, us being evil sodomites, you know, they're, they're passing away and they can't spread their hate like they used to. So I think naturally things are evolving to be more acceptable. In your book, you talk about um, growing up in Reading, which is a conservative town. You talk about your family's conservative, but not necessarily religious. As we sit here at Cal University, I'm thinking of my other guest. I had Kate Scott. Kate Scott is a Bay Area media person, and I had her on my podcast a few months ago. She grew up in Fresno, the Clovis area, and she went from a conservative area to the Cal campus. Parts of it were shocking for her. What was it like for you having a complete 180 in your where you were living at home to where you were going to school your freshman year? Yeah, it was it was it was pretty shocking. Now I I come down to San Francisco area a whole lot, so my whole family's from San Francisco. They were all born and raised. My mom and dad both you know generations back were from San Francisco, and um, so I was familiar with the Bay Area, not so much Berkeley, and. You know, I, I didn't even really think about how liberal Berkeley is and accepting, and I, I, that didn't even cross my mind. But it is night and day from Reading. But it was a great experience. Uh, this is a this is a really cool town. There's a lot going on. Um, you know, I always acted very close-minded, but I was inside. I was always very open and wanted to experience things. And um, Berkeley has a lot to offer. Um, and I took advantage of a lot of that, you know. It was, it was overall a great experience here. Did you really allow yourself to enjoy it, or were parts of you unable to do that? Well, I mean, shallowly. I mean, I mean it, it... No, I mean, when you're, when you're closeted, you can't truly be yourself and experience everything, you know, fully. Um, but I had moments that were fun, um, you know, little escapes from my own little hell that I created in my own mind. Um, you know, I, I think everyone, even the most oppressed person, has moments of joy. What was it like to move away from family and friends and have more freedom that way, but be closeted still and be in a community that's tighter because you're closer together and you're on a, a college sports team? Yeah, well, one of the, one of the reasons I committed to Cal so early and, and chose to go to school here and play football here was it was only three hours from my hometown. And my senior year of high school, I had junior, senior year, I had made friends with that different group and we all got close. And, um, you know, you get a scholarship to play football in Berkeley and you're in Reading, you kind of end up being a big deal. And so I thought all my friends would be coming down, hanging out, going to games. And that was one of the reasons why I chose Berkeley. Um, that didn't end up happening. You know, I had a couple friends that came down to games and stuff now and then, but I quickly made friends with people from here and on the team because when you play football in college or really any level, you're around your teammates a lot. So you end up, 
naturally being friends with these people um, and hanging out with them, and, and that's, that's what happened. So, you know, my concerns moving here, you know, they went away pretty quickly after you meet, you know, people that you have some stuff in common with. And, and also moving here, kind of the same thing happened when I went to the NFL and I knew a new city. No one knew me. You know, they knew of me playing football from Reading, but they didn't know anything else. So I was kind of able to create my own identity. And quickly I made that identity. I, I tried to be the biggest asshole around, and which, you know, it worked as far as... How, do you, how would you do that? What do you mean, asshole? I, I would just say fucked up stuff to people. Um, like teammates or people around you? Yeah, I would always just try to get a laugh. And I, I hated... So when I was in a group of people, I, I hated quiet because I always thought a question was going to come my way, like, where's your girlfriend, or just something. Um, I didn't have those concerns as much about girlfriend questions in high school, but as soon as you turn 18, your hormones are going, and you're, you know, you're, you're on the prowl. And Your hormones didn't start till 18? Well, <laughs> they did earlier, but, you know, when you're living at home, you have an excuse of why you're not bringing people yeah. home, but when you're, you know, in a dorm and your roommate's, you know, smashing some girl's brains out and... <laughs> being disrespectful and you're just laying there and you're not bringing anyone home it's like okay what's your excuse so you know I, I I became much more paranoid about about how I was coming off to people so I decided to be the asshole and make messed up comments to people and you know I I, I gained that reputation pretty quickly I was really surprised within the book how open and honest you were I mean you were in your head and you went to a dark place sometimes yeah, I, 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 you know, I dug a hole for myself, and I, I thought I'd never be able to get out of it, and I was just, I was miserable. I was so blind to, you know, the possibility of there being a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. It, I just, when, as soon as I decided I could never come out, I never reevaluated it until the end. Um, there was never any moment that kind of made me think, okay, you know, it might be okay if I come out. You know, but I think short of family saying, as a child, saying, hey, if you're gay, we would love you no matter what. I think short of that, I don't think anything would have, you know, hit me over the head hard enough to be like, snap out of it, everything will be fine. Um, so I just, I got that mindset, and, you know, I, I, never, I never looked away from it um, until the very end. But I was, I was consumed in my own mind, though. Like, your imagination was going, and you were making things way worse than it actually was in reality. Oh, yeah. I just, because I never, I didn't know any, well, I didn't know that I knew any gay people growing up, and I, I didn't, uh, I just didn't know any better. I, I just thought it was kind of a end-of-the-world scenario with family concerned, and, um, you know, obviously I was very, very wrong about that, but, uh, you know, growing up, you hear loved ones talking about faggot this, faggot that, and... Um, all these people dying of AIDS. And when were you born? Eighty-three. Yeah, I turned thirty-six this year. That's like I tell people. That's like that's the, no. I tell people I'm like I'm seventy in gay years. Like I need to like get off with stuff. Yeah, but then you'll be a daddy and you'll be fine. Gosh, I already have twinks trying to call me daddy, and it's like not happening. Not my pet peeve is when someone the same age as the person is calling them a daddy. That just irritates me. I think that's just a mindset people have where the whole submissive thing. I don't, I don't know. People can do what they want, but don't call me daddy. That's <laughs> not happening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I forgot what we were talking about. Yeah. That was, <laughs> uh, what were we talking about though? I think just being in your head. Yeah. We, um, 
we're intentionally being vague on some things because I want people to buy this book for your foundation, for you. Yeah. Like I said before, this book just isn't about a coming out story. It's talking about depression, suicide. It's talking about drugs in the NFL. It's talking about so much. Yeah, it, it, it's, uh, yeah, I've got a messy story with a lot of layers. You know, it's pretty much an onion. and it's, uh, But because of that, I've, I've been able to speak on different topics, like when I go do different corporate things and, you know, mental health and drug use. And uh, here in a couple months, I'm, I'm speaking in front of a group of 200 doctors about um, post-injury and drugs and uh, mental health and, um, you know, how, what, what they can do and awareness. And so it's kind of, you know, my story uh, touches a lot of, covers a lot of bases and, um, you know, a lot of different people going on, through different things can relate in a way. And that, you know, that, that's a good thing about my book and my story. Um, that's why it's important to get it out there. In the book you talk about when you're at Cal, um, you start to use marijuana a little bit. You also talk about your first injury in football, your first major injury, I should say. In college sports, they don't really have the, um, the drug testing as much as they do in the NFL, correct? No, they do now. So it's changed a little bit. But when I was here... In my first year here, I don't, I didn't smoke. Um, I did a couple times in high school, but then that was, yeah, whatever. But then, I, when I moved out of the dorms, is when I really started smoking more. But I got injured a lot more, and um, you know, I think that hand injury was the first one. And I just uh, at the gnarly scar, yeah, I got caught and it snapped. And oh, that's about that injury you talk about in the book. Yeah, then that was my first surgery. The night before, my buddy's like, yeah, let's go play poker and drink beers and. Don't get drunk the night before surgery because the nurses in the recovery room will hate you for it. And yeah, but uh, so yeah, I, I started smoking more and more when I moved out of the dorms, and I uh, it was a good pain reliever for one, but a good escape and way to make buddies and hang out. And um, I was fortunate to be able to always have weed, so people always came over. And um, did it help you with your thoughts at all? It calmed the thoughts more than anything. I, I, I was an indica guy, so, you know, I smoked, and then it was just melt into the couch, and which became a convenient excuse to not go out. And it, it, it helped a lot of things. Did the smoking help with recovery from injury? Did it um, help at all? Uh, did it help with recovery? No, I don't think so. It, it, uh, no, I don't think it hurt recovery either, though. I mean, like, for pain relief. Yeah, yeah. For it, well, with football, you're always feeling some sort of pain, whether injury or surgery or not. You're, you've got some something bugging you, and marijuana definitely helps with pain, and that was a big reason to do it. Um, you know, obviously after surgery, you you pretty much have to take some painkiller the first week after surgery, but after that, you can manage it. You know, with other methods. In comparing injury treatment to your college experience to your professional experience the colleges weren't throwing pain meds at you to help you recover were they no not 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 like the nfl um yeah i don't i don't know why that's different just because you have the same injuries you have the same surgeries but they just they didn't hand them out as loosely as the nfl did um yeah i don't know why how many years did you play at cal uh so i redshirted and then i played four years so i was here for five years 
Um, so yeah, you're you're allowed a lot of guys redshirt, which means you practice with the team, but you don't play. And it doesn't count against your eligibility. Oh, excuse me. It, it's a good it's a good way. It's a good way to uh, learn the system. You know, coming from Reading, the competition level is not what it is in L.A. So these guys that played high school football in L.A. are kind of a step above. Um, and I learned that quick at that, that first camp I went to here that, you know, I had to get stuff together. So it, it gives you a good chance to, to really learn college football and, and to, to, you know, get more competitive. What are your biggest moments at Cal, your highlights? Game moments, um, awards, what would they be? I think what first comes to mind is I won the Morris Trophy, which was given um, at the time it was the Pac-10. Um, it's given to the best offensive lineman and defensive lineman in the Pac-10. But what's special about that is all the defensive linemen from all the other schools that I played against voted on it. So everyone I went against voted me as the best, and then we, the offensive linemen, voted on all the defensive linemen. Um, so it's your, it's the peers and the people you went against that give you that award and say, yeah, he's. He's really good, and so that award sticks out. You know, as far as individual game moments, you know, there there was a big game where we beat USC when they were going undefeated. That's back when they had Lineart and Reggie Bush, and the goalposts came down here at the stadium. Um, we got up to number three in the country ranking that year, and then we got robbed of the Rose Bowl because the head coach from Texas, you know, he went on his little media campaign whining and. Um, so that was kind of a shot to the heart, but uh, you know we we were doing good. I, I think my best memories from Cal are, are the the friendships I made um, that lasted throughout the years, and even to this day. I mean, just last night I went to dinner with two of my good buddies, and I'm still friends with that live here in the Bay Area. And um, most of my friends that I have today are from college. Really? Yeah, I, I have very few people in Reading. Just. Uh, one reason or another, I'm not friends with anymore. Um, you mentioned in the book uh, regarding your friends from Reading that most of them got out as, as quickly as they could, and the ones that, that stayed aren't exactly the same people that you knew back then. Yeah, well, the, the, one, the ones in Reading, Reading has a way of just, I mean, it's really a black hole for people. It just, it, it sucks them in. There's not a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of drugs. People have babies really young, and they just get locked down, and, um, for whatever reason, they're just not motivated. And, you know, those aren't the people I really want to be friends with. And um, money has gotten in the way a couple times, just people asking for stuff or, you know, you got to learn to say no. Um, which is a shame. You know, I, I, you know, in the book, I only lost two of the friends because I came out. Um, my best buddy who lived with me for seven years. Um, Brian, right? Brian, yeah, totally straight guy. Uh, just, he was the first person I came out to. Um, and this was a high school friend, right? I, I knew him since sixth grade. Uh, we became good friends in high school, and then we had one of those silly packs in high school. If one of us ever made it, we'd bring the other one along for the ride, and I get drafted, and I get a phone call from Brian. Hey, you know, oh, <laughs> but but it it was it was a good thing though. I, I don't want to sound like it was it was a good thing. I was moving to a new place, and it was nice to have someone along. And you know, six and a half out of those seven years we lived together were great. Um, 
you know, he, I came out to him. When I first came out to him, everything was great. Uh, gave me a hug, said, love you, buddy. Just, you know, everything was fine. And then I started telling other people that I was gay, and then he started acting funny. And it ended badly. It ended in a... And you go over that in the book. I go over that in the book, and he... Uh, I'm left assuming that things went bad because he assumed that other people assumed that there was something between us and that bothered him for some reason. And there was never anything between us. It, it, not even that one. There was never anything between us. But, you know, I don't dwell on it. It's fine, you know. Um, and then uh, I was really good friends with Aaron Rodgers. And um, after I came out, things were fine. Flew me out, went out to Green Bay and um, hung out, chatted, made some plans, and then shortly after, uh, things went south. I'll, 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 be, I'll be vague on that, and then we haven't chatted now in seven years. And most NFL fans know that their stories come out that Aaron dropped people, friends and family. Yeah, everyone. Um, <laughs> there's been a lot of speculation about... Aaron and his life and things and um, you know I was the first one that got the axe and then you know everyone else went shortly after that chapter 15 of the book (laughs) (laughs) and find out why he has a nickname Bubbles too (laughs) I don't think he'll like the chapter but I was nice I hope he doesn't take it that way because I read the chapter and yeah, there's differences in, in their sadness and there's ending of a friendship, but you weren't an asshole to him. I mean, you just told what happened and, and that's that. No, I don't think so. And I was cautious about that because I'm not – was I hurt? Yeah. Do I Do I not – you know, we're not friends. I don't sit here daily and think about – he never crosses my mind until we do interviews and stuff like this. But uh, you can't tell your life story without including the lowest moment. And what happened between us, which I discuss in the book, was the lowest moment of my life. And Oh, yeah, because you have this moment where you come out and things are getting better for you. And you have this project that's developing and all of a sudden he just drops away and it's done. Gets swept out from under you and then you're like, what the hell's going on? Yeah. And you have no reason why. You just, you're stuck there trying to figure things out again. And Yeah. So if if anything, I would love to know what the hell happened. Yeah. But who knows? Do you think he'd reach out to you after? Oh, I don't know. I, I yeah, I don't really. I don't know. I, I don't. Do you think any of these people that you you write about, um, that you haven't spoken to in a while, do you think any of them will reach out to you? Even the coach that you reference? Uh, well, I don't use the coach's name. Right. Oh yeah, you give him a fake name. Yeah, I totally gave him a fake name. I'm not. Tr- oh yeah, no info is given where you could even guess who it is. It's so vague. Yeah, there there was a coach that... Um, they can read the book to find out that info. Yeah, yeah, you need to read the book. But no, no I, don't, I, don't, I don't see why he would reach out to me. I didn't use his name. I think the last thing he wants to do is, is send a message like, hey, it was me. And, you know, I'm sure the NFL is going to knock on my door and be like, try to figure out who this coach was because he is still coaching. And um, they'd probably like to know that that stuff's going on you know coaches have the injury report they know who's injured they know who's getting what from doctors and they know who to go to if they want something and let's transition to the nfl what was draft day like for you i know originally there was talks about you possibly going day one 
Um, what was that weekend like? Yeah, my worst nightmare in that scenario happened. You, you know, everyone that has a draft party and they don't get drafted. You know, I was, I was persistent in saying I didn't want to have a draft party. I'm just going to lay low. But one of my really good friends who came to a lot of games, she wanted to have one for me. And talking to my agent and um, everyone I had hired um, who were – some of the best in the business. I, Aaron told me who to hire. I hired all the same people he did and everything else. And um, they were confident that I was going to get drafted in the first day. And um, that ended up not happening. But uh, so that was a long day of awkward silence and um, just watching TV, waiting on that phone call. And every time the phone did buzz, it was not what I was hoping. And um, but the next morning, I got a phone call pretty early, and I ended up probably in the best situation that I could have with the Patriots. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the depth chart looked and the opportunity I had making the team, and the offensive line coach there is phenomenal. Um, each team, each coach has their own style. Um, and I can confidently say that Scar, that's his nickname, that offensive line coach in New England is, is the best in the business. He he whips your ass into shape and makes sure you you don't have a foot out of place. And having him from the beginning, you know, really taught me how to how to play and use my hands. And um, I'm, I'm pretty confident after going to Kansas City and seeing other coaches' style that if I didn't start out with Scar as my coach, I wouldn't have made it six years. Really? Yeah. He's that much better than the other – what makes him better? His attention to detail. He has a he <laughs> he has a way of communicating. And um, off the field, he's the nicest guy in the world. Around his wife, everything, he's the nicest guy in the world. But um, there's a couple things where he would take snaps from the center, uh, just practicing. And one of the rookie centers snapped the ball and it jammed his finger. And he chases him down the field, motherfucking him, throwing the football at him. He was just a little guy. Um, he, uh, I, I messed up once, and um, he says these things kind of to be funny, but he's not a funny, he's a serious guy, but you can tell he's, he's a funny guy. But he, uh, I messed up, and he called me a, a low-rent, inbred, cock-sucking motherfucker just as like a, you know, cursing me out type thing. And it just came out of his mouth like he'd been practicing it. And it was, it was you know, you get called that, how do you not laugh? You know, and, and uh, it was, yeah, it was just his style. And um, I think everyone had total confidence, you know, in what he was teaching. It was the right way. And if you didn't do it his way, you just, you weren't there anymore. Um, so he is, he had a way of, of, of teaching that that I responded to. Being someone who's in his head so much, having a coach call you a cocksucker, did you ever think it was homophobic? Did you ever, were you ever afraid he was calling you out? No, no, I... I I know a lot of people now that consider cocksucker a homophobic term. I don't know. Is that a bad thing? It's not not it being homophobic, being called a cock... Yeah, I don't know. If someone wants to get offended by being called a cocksucker and you're gay... I can see how that could be offensive, but I didn't, I didn't, yeah, I, t- I didn't take that from him as being 
a gay slur or something like that. It was just a, yeah, it was just a coach yelling at you. I didn't, no, I, I didn't see that as, so no. Now, now if he, you know, if someone starts calling you a faggot and this and the other thing, then okay, you know, then they're bringing sexuality into it. But yeah. calling someone a cocksucker isn't, in my opinion, you know, yeah. an awful thing. I don't go around doing it, but, you know, I didn't take it that way at all. Yeah. And knowing Scar, it's not... It's not No, not at all. Not at all. No, not at all. More just a reaction. Yeah, and actually, right right now, you bringing that up is the first time I thought that that thought of that is that way at all. Yeah. I I never, it never came across whatsoever as... No, I did have a coach that would always say no homo and that, yeah, he's saying no homo. That's the Chiefs coach? Yeah, that was Todd Haley, but he, uh, no, there's a big difference in, in those things, especially of how it was happening. Yeah, it wasn't the intent. How was your first year, though, in New England? You have a coach who is one of the greatest. You have a quarterback who is one of the greatest. How was that first season? Both are awesome people. Um, yeah, the Boston area was, you know, Berkeley was different than Reading, but the Boston area was about as far away from home as I could have gone. Um, the people out there are totally different, uh, intense, in your face. Um, it, it was it was a lot happens after you get drafted. You go from getting drafted to moving to having to. It's a job. You got to learn the playbook. You're into mini camp real quick, and that's kind of why having Brian was really really helpful. It uh, you know it, it was nice having someone there to help get things together, um, help find a place to to move and. Um, so yeah, a, a lot was happening quickly as soon as I got out. As soon as I got out there, um, you know, my main focus had to be learning the playbook and making the team. And you know, for me, staying closeted because that's what football was to me. It was a beard, so I had to. I had to do these things to, you know, I, my book. You know, my life on the line. But in my mind, that that's 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 my that was my approach to everything. And during the football season, you are all in. Oh yeah, it has to be because it, it's. You know, the NFL's a business before anything else, and they're always looking for the next guy who's, he could be just as good as you. You're equal in every way. But if he's 20 grand less a year, they're going to pick him because it's a business. Um, 20 grand's 20 grand, even if some guys are making 20 million. It, uh, you know, I talk about they cut my jersey off one game after I got injured. Well, it was sewn up when I came back, what was it, five weeks later. You know, a jersey's, a, a jersey's what, 200 bucks, 300 bucks? But, you know, if they go through 30 of those in a season, it adds up. So, It's also a billion-dollar industry. It is, but you don't become a billionaire by True. giving everyone jerseys every week. And, you know, it's, uh, you, you understand that once you've played, and especially after you retire and what you have to go through for injuries, and there's a lot of different things that people just don't understand. You know, like we have to file work comp. It's a job, you know. You don't just get handed things. You have to. You have to fight for them. And, um, and taxes are different for you too, right? Oh, geez, taxes. Ugh. It's. Uh, Cause don't you have to file in every state you play? Yeah, like yeah. So you file. And that's rookies too. Yeah, but what sometimes though that worked out great. You play a game in Texas or Florida, 
you got a 10% raise because you don't have to pay income tax. And that's awesome. It, uh, it's kind of why I want to move to Vegas now. It's like I could, you know, basically get free rent, just save a 9%. It would be great. But, uh, yeah, so I, I had an accountant that got paid too much, but uh, did his job. And um, I... <laughs> You know, this is too much info, but I ended up getting audited one year for an honest mistake. I, I forgot to claim the the check we got back from the Players Association. It was like ten grand or something, and which is a lot of money, but ten grand on top of a half million. He just I forgot. Well, that started an audit, and then every year after that, for some reason, I got you know I don't know if you call it audited or what, but I got double checked on everything, and it just yeah. Yeah, I love the IRS. Even even to this day, you know, I, I I got injured a lot, so I won a disability through the NFL. I'm one of you know not many people have won that, and most people that get this disability through employer and stuff, there's different different tax levels and stuff, and I still get hammered by the IRS. Just in the amount of taxes I have to pay, it's yeah. Yeah. Was the first year the game you mentioned in the book where you went up against Michael Strahan? No, that was my... I think that was the third year. Was it your third year? That we, we lost the it Super Bowl? More than I <laughs> Not really. I, I, I just played football. I wasn't a fan. I didn't... Uh, what year was that? That was the 07, Super, 07 season, 08 Super Bowl. So it might have been the second year. That was the year we went undefeated. We got Randy Moss yeah. and Wes Welker, and we won every game. Then I started – the last game of the regular season was against the Giants. I started that game, and then we played – we had a bye, and then we – or we had two byes, and then we played in the playoffs. Then we ended up seeing the Giants again in the Super Bowl, and then we lost. That was that catch on the back of the head. And, um, that was a long season for what ended up being a big loser's ring. <laughs> And yeah, I, I mean, but I mean, people play 20 year careers and they never get to the Super Bowl, you know, so I'm, you know, it was an awesome experience. A lot of family and friends got to go to the Super Bowl and, you know, that was all great and everything. But to get all the way there and then lose is kind of, it sucks. Do you think the Michael Strahan game, though, is one of your best games ever? Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that was uh and, you know, people ask me all the time, who's the best player you've ever gone against? And it was Michael Strahan. It, it's, I watched a ton of film on him, and there's things that you really, in person, that are a lot different. Like, you can't see just how long his arms are in person. And I don't have long arms for an offensive tackle. Um, and, yeah, he was just – and he was a smart player. And I, I knew I wasn't going to overpower the guy, so I knew I just had to – try to know what he was doing before the snap. And, um, you know, my preparation paid off that game, and I, I played well. You know, he, he got the better of me a couple times, but... When you're playing 60 minutes of the game, though, it's going to happen sometime. Yeah, he's getting paid, too. That was one thing Coach always said. Listen, this guy's getting paid, too. He's going to win a couple of them. And um, he was getting paid a hell of a lot more than I was. And, you know, I think I, I, I definitely held my own. And doing well that game, you know, really benefited me the rest of my career because they saw, you know, my potential, you know. 
but I, I hate using that word potential, though. I, I had a coach once tell me that potential means you haven't accomplished a damn thing. <laughs> it just means you could. <laughs> but, yeah, the things that stick with you. True, true. In New England, is that where the, um, the drug use starts, the depression starts, the hating your life, the plan where after football is over, you're going to end it all? Is that where it all starts in New England? No, no. I mean, I, my thoughts of hating my life and all that started a long time before that. Yeah, that got worse and worse as the years went on. And, um, you know, I, I knew I wasn't going to be able to play in the NFL forever. But then certain injuries happen and, and you start evaluating your position on teams. And that would definitely affect my mood and, and you know, my inner thoughts of, you know, oh, shit, this might be over. What, what, what the hell do I do? And um, but the the real bad stuff didn't start until you know the last couple of years of Kansas City. That's when it really started to because I had injury after injury and um, I had hurt, I had hurt my groin. I tore the muscles of my groin the year before I tore my shoulder for the last time, and I knew that you know I was missing these muscles now. And I knew I didn't have the feet, you know, the mobility that I used to have. And I had to try to hide that. And uh, so after that happened, I knew I didn't have long playing. Um, it was kind of a matter of who, you know, can I fool him type thing and end up as a backup and not have to go out there and show that, you know, I'm not what I used to be. And as soon as those injuries start to pile up, you know, you see that, okay, this is going to be over here pretty soon. And after my, what was it, my sixth shoulder surgery, I knew that, okay, that was over and football was over. And um, after meeting with Scott, the general manager of of uh, the Chiefs at the time, um, who's an awesome guy, and I talked about him in the book quite a bit, but he, uh, you know, we had a very honest conversation, like, okay, you know, I think football's, that's it. You know, you become a, you become a liability at a certain point where, you know, because if you're playing and you get hurt, you're on injured reserve and they have to pay you the whole year. Well, they're not going to sign someone who they expect to get injured because that's a bad business move. So I knew that I'd become a liability and I probably wasn't going to, you know, be able to play anymore. And you know that that's when it really went downhill and the pills really picked up. But you asked about the pills starting in New England, and I had. Obviously, after every surgery, you, st you have to take painkillers, but I wasn't an addict. There's a difference between taking some pills and being an addict. I wasn't an addict until the last years at the Chiefs. I was amazed by the story you told about, I believe it was in New England, when you get injured, I think, for your final time there, and the doctor comes back and with the results and says, oh, no, you're all good. You're fine. You're good to play. Yeah, there's a bunch of funny rules in the NFL where they, they can't, they can't cut you from the roster if you're injured. Um, so this was during training camp. I had, we were doing a drill, and um, my left arm got ratcheted over my head. And I had injured that shoulder several times before, and I knew I was injured. I, you know, my shoulder, I couldn't move my My shoulder was dislocated. And, um, so I go to the trainer. I was out immediately, like, okay, something's going on. I couldn't move my arm. And they... Uh, they had x-ray facilities at the stadium. They didn't x-ray. An x-ray is not going to show anything unless you have a broken bone. Mm -hmm. So then they do a basic MRI. Um, 
and you know, a basic MRI shows more than X-ray, but what you really need is the fluoroscopy, the one with the dye that shows the oh, ligaments yeah. and everything. So Mike Vrabel was our union rep, and I met with him. He's like, yeah, tell him you want this, and tell him you want this, because you have certain, you have, you're allowed certain things per the collective bargaining agreement, but the team's not going to go out of the way and say, here's your options. Like, it's up to you to know these things. And so I got the real MRI done. Um, well, I had the first MRI done, and the team doc, uh, not the head team doctor, but the other team doctor, um, who was also an orthopedic guy, brought me in the exam room. Um, you know, this was also kind of an office for the doctors. It had the little x-ray light, and he brought me in there and told me, oh, there's nothing new wrong with your shoulder, um, which I knew my shoulder was fucked up, and I... Uh, you know, their goal is to try to get you to go out there and practice because you're not worth anything if you're not practicing. And uh, I knew my shoulder was messed up, and that's when I went to Mike, and I said, okay, what, what do I do? And that's when he said, demand this and a second opinion. And So I did all that, and then they couldn't not just say, okay, yeah, you're injured. Um, so after I, I took advantage of my options, uh, I ended up having surgery. Um, back in California, and I uh, went right back out to New England. It's, you know, you can't fly right after you have surgery just because blood clots or whatever. And so I was back out in New England pretty soon after surgery, and I did all my rehab there um, just so they can see that, you know, I was taking it serious. And um, so that ended up working out. But, you know, it was a long process and a little bit of deception along the way. And then you would find yourself in Kansas City. Yeah, so uh, Scott Pioli, who was the general manager in New England when I got drafted, took the job in Kansas City. And um, the Patriots had drafted another tackle, Sebastian Vollmer, because they anticipated Matt Light retiring soon. And Anyways, the way the roster was looking, it was, it was up in the air of whether they'd have a spot for me and... Um, they were trying to work out a last-minute deal. But even if I did end up on the Patriots that year, you know, it was – I wasn't probably starting. And it, it was just – it was up in the air. And I ended up getting released. They didn't get this last-minute trade going through. And uh, I met with Belichick when it was all – you know, when they were telling me that I was getting released. And he knew that Scott was going to call me and, you know, make me a chief. And um, – so I heard from Scott, and because uh, Scott knew I could play, you know, he was there against that game of Strahan. Scott brought me over, and they had expectations for me to play to start at the Chiefs quick. Um, so I got there, and I had a different offense. You know, a lot of offenses are similar; just things are called different, but a lot of the schemes are the same. And um, so by that point, you know, I was a student of football, and it was. It was somewhat easy to learn the playbook. Um, and Scott had also brought over Mike Vrabel, and he brought over Matt Castle. And there were some familiar faces, which made the transition somewhat easy. And also Brian was living with me, and so he you know, helped with that kind of stuff, which made that helpful. I think I ended up living in the team hotel for like a month or something. But uh, so yeah, the transition to Kansas City wasn't nearly as difficult as the one to the Patriots. Culture shock from college to pro, I imagine. 
Yeah, and going NFL to NFL is a lot different from going college to the NFL. Having teammates come along, having Brian come along, I'm sure made it easier. Yeah, and there's some guys in the NFL that bounce from team to team to team to team you know, their whole career, and I don't know how they do it, but they do it. Um, yeah, even minimum salary is better than 99% of any other job. Yeah. So it's, yeah. What was the difference going from New England Patriots to Kansas City Chiefs? Well, the cities themselves couldn't be any different, any more different. They, you know, Kansas City was kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, but it was friendly as all hell. It was a nice place to live. Um, the team had a lot of good support. And, and you're still deeply in the closet at this point. Oh, yeah, very much so. Um, but the culture on the team was totally different. You know, they had hired Todd Haley, who had come from, like, the Bill Parcells pedigree, so they expected him to be a certain way, and he wasn't uh, at all. <laughs> um, so Todd didn't last long, and, uh, yeah, it, it, was nice. it, was, it was almost shocking, like, the stark contrast between, you know, just the two teams and the atmosphere and... and the type of guys that were on the team. Um, you mentioned in New England, you know, you're used to winning. You have this attitude, this culture of winning. Practices are hard. Watching game tape is, is intense, and, and Kansas City was just different, right? Yeah, well, anytime you walk into a place where there's a new coach and um, new general manager, you expect it. You expect there to be a little growing pains, but... Uh, it was a lot different. Um, even from year one to year two, it was just kind of trying to find an identity type thing. And that was Todd's first chance being a head coach. I think he was trying to figure out what kind of coach he was. And, you know, you can't go from being a player coach, happy-go-lucky buddies with everyone. You have one year, and suddenly your second year, you're trying to be a hard ass. And it's like, you can't take someone serious if they're trying to do that. And, yeah, there, there wasn't a lot of, I didn't see a lot of hope. They got it going on now, though. They're, yeah. they're doing great now. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, a lot of excitement with that team right now. Yeah, well, Mahomes, and then uh, they hired Andy Reid, and yeah. Um, they, yeah, yeah. And Scott ended up doing well. He ended up with the Falcons and doing a good job there. They made it to the Super Bowl. They lost to the Patriots, but uh, <laughs> they, they made it, and um, Scott just retired this year. Um, and he's actually doing a lot of uh, outreach. Um, he's, a, he's a big ally with the LGBT community, and um, hopefully him and I are going to go around and do some okay. things together. And uh, he, he's been a big proponent of getting females in the NFL as far as coaching jobs mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So Scott's a, Scott's a great guy who's, you know, people should, people should uh, you know, not a lot of people know who general managers are, but right. he's, a, he's, a, he's a good one. And they're not all good ones, but he's a good one. Kansas City would get more playing time. Um, unfortunately, you got more injuries. Injuries led to pain pills. Pain pills led to addiction. And then you come to realizing that your career probably won't last much longer. What's the thought process going on in your head? Yeah, I, I, it was, the writing was on the wall that my career was going to be over, and then I met with Scott, and I had my whole plan in my head, football's over, 
you know, life's over. And that suddenly became very real. And um, I started self-destructing, taking even more drugs. And I was a junkie. I was a flat-out junkie. I was, there wasn't a moment that I wasn't high on Oxycontin or similar drug. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought I was doing a good enough job around the facility hiding it. You know, some people knew I was taking pills and stuff, but I don't think they knew exactly how many or, or, you know, to the extent of it. They they definitely didn't know why. But uh, our trainer, um, David Price at the time, um, he passed away recently, unfortunately, but he uh, noticed I was acting funny, and he knew I was taking pills because the team would prescribe some, but he didn't know exactly what I was taking or that I was going to outside doctors too and um, he noticed I was acting funny and he brought me in his office and suggested I go talk to someone um, about the drug use. He didn't obviously know I was about being gay or anything but so he introduced me to Dr. Wilson who didn't work for the Chiefs or the NFL but she was a, a psychologist that the team used for different reasons and so they set me up with her, and um, I kind of brushed her off and didn't take it too serious. And then, you know, she was a professional, and over the months she broke me down and um, got to the point where I told her I was gay. Um, do you think going to her, talking with her, coming out to her, do you think she is one of the big people in your life that, that really ended up saving your life? Between, yeah, between David Price noticing I was self-destructing and... and her getting to the root of it, yeah, uh, between those two, um, I give them a lot of credit because I definitely wasn't in any state of mind or desire to just suddenly come out and be okay with life. If it wasn't for them, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be around. But uh, it took a while for, I mean, I'd never said the words I'm gay. In my head, I mean, I practiced doing the opposite. I, I never, I never wanted to slip up and just say it for some reason. I always thought I was about to, and one of those crazy things going on in my head. But after I told her, you know, one of the first things she told me was I wasn't the first NFL player to tell her, and I'm like, oh, okay. Was it shocking for you to hear that there had been others, that there were others that they've heard from? Yes and no, but you know, you hang out, you hang out with the same group of people for long enough, you learn stuff about them. You know, you follow a man's eyes, you can tell whether he's straight or gay in a locker room and everywhere else. So I had suspected other teammates, but I obviously wasn't going to say anything. Or So I knew that in my rookie year, having that football player come and talk to us that was gay, I, I knew there were other guys that were at least interested in men one way or another. But uh, So I wasn't totally shocked, but um, for her just to come out and say that, and um, almost like it was normal. Which is normal, but uh, at that time I was not thinking, you know, I've got a bunch of people that are just like me. Um, but after I did come out, you know, just kind of skipping ahead, coming out, after I did come out, I've, I had a lot of ex-players, current players reach out to me. I was going to ask about that because a lot of times I've had these talks and the people always say, oh, yeah, I've been talked to other players. Yeah, they're out there. There's more than a handful. They, uh, it just takes a lot to, to do it publicly um, for different reasons. Everyone's got their own reasons, whether they're married to a woman and have kids or culturally. You know, I, know, I know in the African-American community, it's, it's you know, not 
the response to being gay isn't the same as, as you know, yeah, the white community. That, that's just a fact. Religious, you know, religion's always the big fucking deal with it. But, um, yeah, but you, you hear from all sorts of different guys, pro bowlers, and um, it's just getting that one person to come out publicly who's already made it is a tough thing. And I met with the commissioner, Roger Goodell, and, you know, he flat out asked me, what can I do to help help these guys that are closeted? And we, we talked about a couple different things, different people, and what they could do. Um, we had talked about that, and then everything with Kaepernick happened. And that turned into a, well, we all know what happened there. And the NFL kind of got put in a position where to some people, they were being seen as like an activist because they were taking a stance on this whole Kaepernick thing. And the last thing the NFL needs to do as a company is alienate certain fans. And so everything kind of got messed up there. And um, so the NFL hasn't, the NFL does some things for outreach, not nearly enough. They, uh, the last event, they hosted with kids was before the Super Bowl in Atlanta this past year, so they, they had me out there, and we hosted a group of, um, they team up with local LGBT organizations, and uh, this specific group in Atlanta were uh, youth, but also young adults who were um, kind of in precarious housing situations because of their sexuality, like they were kicked out, or their family, or something, and so we all got together and met up at the Super Bowl experience there, and um, kind of big, did a big group conversation and just kind of hanging out. And um, they had done something like that before in New England. And, and I learned a lot of things at these different mm-hmm. events because, you know, being closeted for so many years, I didn't bother to educate myself on what it means to be cisgender or any, any of these different things. And because um, I never planned on living, I just, uh, but anyways, the NFL needs to do a lot more. And I've been trying to get them to do more. Um, you know, they hosted, uh, the last two years, they've uh, put a float in the New York Pride Parade. Um, so they did that this year, too. Bigger float than last year. They sponsored the parade itself. And they actually interviewed me on the NFL Network talking about it. So they actually drew attention to the fact that they have a float and supportive of the LGBT community. So that's progress. You know, it's it's not a lot of change, but it's progress. Um I'm maybe a little more understanding than others about their situation of why they can't just, you know, have a pride night once a year and um, different things like that. You know, it's a tough position, especially the tough position Goodell's in because he's got 32 different billionaires he has to answer to and their political views don't all align. and And you deal with teams all over the country. I mean, I'm a Cowboy fan, so you have a team in Dallas that you have to deal with that is different than somewhere else. They don't have the most liberal owner. (laughs) I'm being nice. Yeah. I'm a fan of the team, not necessarily the owner. Well, the owner is the team. Be a Patriots fan. Their their owner is a giant ally of the LGBT community. He's, He's a, you know, people have their different opinions of the Patriots and different things that have been in the media lately, but he's a... Oh, yeah, I hate them, but it's because they're so damn good. Well, as long as Brady and Belichick are together, the Patriots have a chance of winning the Super Bowl. It's a a winning record. 
yeah. I always claim Patriots over Chiefs, so just, yeah. Just, well, really, mainly because Mr. Kraft, and he's just, he's been an awesome person, ally. You know, after I came out to him, he tried calling me, and he was in Israel, and he found out, and then he had me out to, uh, yeah, you talk about that in the end of the book, right? Yeah, he, he had me out. He had me out to New England, had me out to a game. He had me in his office where they had a little uh, cocktail party beforehand. Like Mark Wahlberg was there. And, you know, that was all cool things. He put me in his seats and flew me in his helicopter. And he's done countless things for the LGBT community, donating to Elton John's founder. Him and Elton John are friends. I mean, he, he's done a lot for the community. And um, I just had a meeting with him a couple weeks ago about my foundation. And I should find out here soon, um, you know, what kind of support I'll be getting uh, from him. So, fingers crossed. Um, whether I get anything or not, though, that's not going to change my opinion, you know, about okay. him. Um, he's just, he's, he's, I, I, I judge NFL teams differently, just mainly by the ownership. And, you know, there's, there's a couple like Mr. Kraft and Ross with the Dolphins who started Rise, the initiative for equality. And, there's a couple of the guys that are doing a lot of great things. Um, I don't want to keep you much more, but... No, it's okay. I'm here. Okay, cool. Um, you reach the end of your career. You are at the lowest point in your life with injury and addiction. You've come out to a few people. What is, what's bringing about that change to take you on the upswing to to help you um, get out of the bottom. Yeah, there was that last, that last year in the NFL and that first year after I came out, there was a lot of ups and downs because, you know, I met with Dr. Wilson. I, I came out to her. That kind of gave me the courage, you know, in, in her, her idea, not in this basic way, was, you know, my whole plan was to... F- kill myself after football because I thought all these people would never love me and she basically said find out if they will love you if you're just going to kill yourself anyways it's such a basic idea but it really is isn't it but I was just so closet and just mess up my own head I never even thought about that I didn't even consider that and so that's what I did I went and I told family the people I was most worried about and does it get easier each time you tell someone new it got easier oh yeah. yeah 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 especially after I told the main people I was concerned about and they were fine. And then I started telling other people. And then you learn you have this whole community of people that you don't even know that'll be there to support you no matter what. And, but when you're so closeted, you don't look for these. At least I didn't. I didn't look to see what kind of support system was out there. And um, You quickly learn that you know, there, there's a lot of people out there that'll take you as you are. And um, you know, even if, because most people, not most people, most people's family is accepting. But there's a lot of people that, it doesn't go that way, yeah. but there's still this other whole group of allies and other gay people out there that'll welcome you like family, um, which was which was awesome. But yeah, so I started telling other people, and it got easier and easier. Um, but then I had those couple of hiccups with Brian and Aaron, and that that was kind of a well, what happened with Aaron? That was a giant low point, and then then I spent a couple years just figuring myself out because you don't go from miserable hating life to perfectly fine overnight so i oh yeah coming out isn't like a magic wand being waved no and i I had a whole bunch of injuries from the nfl and i was 
in pain and off painkillers and trying to figure that out. I mean, what yeah. do you what do you do? So I spent I spent a couple of years learning to love myself and trying to figure out how to manage things. And um, after you retire from the NFL and you've got all these injuries, you have to file work comp and this, that, and the other thing. And four years in court later, I ended up winning. Um, so then I knew what direction financially my life was, and then I could focus on other things. And that's kind of when all that was finally done, that I knew I could, you know, come out publicly. And and, um, and I'd lived, the, you know, as an out gay man a little bit. I, I'd come out right away. I knew people would reach out to me and, you know, either ask for advice or whatever else. I, I couldn't relate. I didn't live the life yet. Um, so I, you know, I got a few years under my belt and had the finally had the courage to come out publicly and um, start the charity. And everything since then's been uh, positive. And you had actually come out twice, right? <laughs> yeah. Gosh, I'm so happy. No one. Yeah, I. The first guy I dated, I dated him for a few months. I was dating him, and I was getting inducted into the uh, local county hall of fame in Reading. And for some reason, I built up the courage. I was like, "Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring my boyfriend, and this will be it. I'm gonna come out." And so I brought him to the event. Now, Reading, it was a small event, but local media was there. So during my acceptance speech, I thanked who came with me, which was my family, a couple friends, and I said, and my boyfriend, Brandon. And before that, the reception, I introduced people to him, and no one batted an eye. Maybe they thought they didn't hear boyfriend or what, because I, I, hadn't, I hadn't been telling a bunch of people around town or anything, but uh, so thankfully, that didn't gain traction, and, and no one brought that up, because looking back, I wasn't going to be in any position to, you know. You weren't ready for it. Oh, no, not at all. But uh, it's a different story now. So the experience was obviously different since you came out without sports the second time, and it was more of a, a media thing. Yeah. It, uh, you know, I, I, when I came out without sports, I'd been dating someone for over a year, and um, I was a much more confident person just in myself and just uh, having lived you know, my life, and, um, you know, I, I, I was, I wasn't necessarily worried about people's reaction, because I was comfortable enough with myself at that point, where if I got some email from some ugly, bigoted person that said die fag, it wasn't going to bother me. Um, so, I, you know, I wasn't too concerned about that, and actually, I didn't receive one hateful email. The only negative thing I read was a comment from some distant family member uh, about how this, oh, it could never be true. His family would never hate him, this, that, and the other thing. And he's only doing it for money. And um, little, little did he know that I donate every penny. You know, anyways. But he, uh, that was the only negative thing. Um, it's usually the ones that, speak out like that, that have their own shit going on. Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of like me. I would always speak out on stuff when I was hiding my own shit. So. I think my biggest takeaway is the fact that you beat yourself up more than anybody. 
yeah, it was mental, but the thoughts you had in your head, the um, the behavior changes you had because you were so afraid of someone finding you out. You even mentioned in the book about not even hearing a lot of homophobia on the field or locker room. Yeah. Well, it, not necessarily homophobia. I mean, you you in college, you would hear guys say faggot, this, that, but it wasn't towards someone calling, you know, because they thought they were gay or anything. It was just people running their mouth, being stupid, not paying attention to what they're saying. But it was more just overly being straight, like talking about who they hooked up with and stuff like that. It just, yeah, so I... I what surprised me was you talking about the fear of um, a question coming towards you when your friends would talk about sex with girls or, you know, just sexual talk, innuendos, that was what you were more afraid of. That's because I always thought I always I always thought the question was going to come my way. But I had rehearsed all these different scenarios of, you know, if someone asked me if I'm dating someone or what do you say or just I I'd rehe- I'd gone through these things a million times in my head. Just I drove myself crazy over it. And looking back now, I can kind of laugh because it was nothing. It was no big deal. And do you think because of your fears you had, um, the thoughts you had. I don't want to say messed up in your head. But I was messed up in my head. Uh, you talked about adding weight to hide your your uh, your homosexuality. But do you think the stress of it all added to injuries? It definitely didn't help anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I, did, I did a lot of self-destructive things to appear as a sloppy straight guy, stereotypically, and, um, which definitely didn't help me. Um, physically, but uh, I think maybe being closeted might have helped me a little bit with football just because I was so focused on doing well and to keep making it that, you know, I I had associated football with being closeted, so I took it extremely seriously. What's next for you? Do you see yourself married in the future? Kids, maybe? Or have you maybe not accepted yourself yet completely? Oh, no, no, no. I I accept myself that's all that's all great um what is next no i'm i'm open to uh meeting someone settling down living in reading doesn't help with that um i take advantage of opportunities when i'm on the road to meet people and to to get myself out there a little bit um you know i'm i'm kind of corny when i'm i'm one of those people that kind of believes that you know, when you're not looking for it, it'll happen type thing. And, um, yeah, I, 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 the word marriage, I I don't know. I'm not against marriage. I don't think you need to get married to prove that you love and want to be with someone. Um, the idea of a kid, I think I would be a great father. I don't think my life would be incomplete without a kid. Um, but I'm not at all against it. I, I, I think if I do have a kid, I'd want to do it in the next 10 years because I don't want to be, you know, 70 with a kid in high school. But, uh, you know, if you are, great. But I don't, I don't, just not for me. Um, Most of my gay friends, the ones that are couples, like like Sid and his husband, they don't have kids. They've been married a long time. they're always traveling and they don't have things holding them down. And that to me is a very appealing life. 
Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, basically to get back around to it. Yeah, I'm I'm open to meeting someone and dating and seeing what happens, but just not what you're looking for right now. No, I mean, if it happens, if I meet the one tomorrow, that's fine. Yeah, I, I've got nothing keeping me from commitment. It just uh, I gotta meet him. Yeah. <laughs> What's next for the Ryan O'Callaghan Foundation? What do you think? Where do you think you'll go the next few years? Well, the foundation's only existed technically for like a little over a year. Um, really just started fundraising and all that a couple months ago. I knew as soon as the book came out and uh, different media stuff with that happened and, and got my name out there more that things would get a little hectic. So I was kind of enjoying that calm before the storm. So just recently I started taking the fundraising and all that seriously. And there's some things... So the purpose of the foundation is to give scholarships and support and mentorship to other LGBT students and youth. For college? Well, I mean, if they're younger and they're not in college, you can't give them a scholarship, but you could still link them up with a mentor or go host group, you know, like, like, like what the NFL does where they team up with other charities that host kids. I'd love to do stuff like that, even locally or, or wherever. There's other great charities like You Can Play that do these different events, and I'd love to team up with them. Uh, Scholarship-wise, though, there's different rules with the NC2A, um, as far as who you can give scholarships to and not having it count against the totals they're allowed to give. So like I think football, they're allowed 86 scholarships. Well, if, I, if one of the guys on the team happens to be gay or bi and I give him one of my scholarships, that money will count against what the school's allowed to give to another player. It can't be on top of it. Now, if the scholarship is open to everyone, not just athletes, there's a whole bunch of different rules. It, it, the NC2A loves rules. Um, I actually met with a compliance officer here today, and I met with the athletic director trying to get some of this going. Um, there's different rules for Division One versus Division Three, and uh, so basically, if the scholarship's open to everyone, and you don't say you have to, it's only for Berkeley kids, or then there's a lot more, you know, there's a lot more I could do. So I, I'm actually, so I, like I said, I met with a compliance guy today. I'm waiting to hear back on a couple of things, but um, I've been chatting with Kirk Walker, who's the assistant softball coach at UCLA. They won the national championship. He's an out gay man. And he's, yeah, so Kirk's an awesome guy. Um, so him and I have been chatting back and forth about this, trying to work out exactly who can get scholarships and, you know, because I, I don't want to give a kid a scholarship and then it takes it away from someone else. And right. it, it, um, so I'm pretty sure I'll end up in Indianapolis talking to the NC2A, trying to figure it out. But the athletic director here at Cal is awesome. Um, I met with him today for a good hour about everything in the book and hoping to get it in the hands of all the student athletes um, as a form of outreach, just... Uh, like I said, the coach here had me talk to the team last year, and that went over really well. And um, So hopefully that happens. I'm going to go school to school and, and, and do that. And, you know, as far as the foundation goes, I, I hopefully get to a point where I can um, hire more people. You know, so every dollar that comes into the foundation goes out. It's called a foundation, but it's more of a charity. I have money in, money out. Um, I don't take a salary. No one... No one gets paid anything. You know, a lot of football players start foundations and then pay themselves or some family member an exorbitant amount of money. And 
none of that happens. So I don't make any, no one makes any, it all goes directly back out. Um, so I would love to just get more corporate donations. You know, it's a lot easier to get a few people to donate a lot of money than a lot of people to donate a dollar. It's been much more of a hustle than I ever thought it would be. But uh, so we'll see. Um, every penny I make from the books go into it. So hopefully and that. Book. And when does the book come out? September 3rd. And where can you get it? And what's it called? Yeah, so the book's called My Life on the Line. It's available Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everywhere right now for pre-order. Uh, it'll be on shelves September 3rd. Um, and I'll be, they got me traveling around quite a bit, different events. I'm going to the book fair in, book, in Brooklyn, which will be a lot of fun, and Miami. That'll be great. And so we're going to be doing different events throughout the country. And um, I have a publicist right now who's working on the big uh, national media. Um, hopefully end up on Good Morning America or something like that. Um, I got a... Michael Strahan hosts that too, right? Yeah, he's reading the book right now. Oh, cool. So hopefully there's a little connection there. Um, We'll see. Football season's coming up. There's a lot of relative topics, and um, yeah, hopefully uh, as many people hear about it and go out and purchase it uh, would be great, you know. I don't want to take up too much of your time, so I wrap up my podcast with a set of questions. Um, it's 15 final questions I'm going to ask. They're really quick. Um, let's get started. If you could have a superpower, what would that be? Ooh, invisibility. Who was your first celebrity crush? Um, I used to watch uh, Saved by the Bell, and I, I, it's so generic, but a lot of people say Zach Morris. I think that was it. Yeah. yeah. If you could meet anyone dead or alive, who would that be? Uh, probably my dad's dad. He died when my dad was like 30-something, and I never got to meet him. Really? Yeah. My dad was an only child, too. So. What is the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week? <laughs> Those debates, probably. <laughs> <laughs> they they need to whittle that down a little bit. Twenty people. Twenty. That's, I mean, yeah, they they're gonna do what the Republicans did in what was it? Oh, yeah. in twenty twelve, yeah. where they just took themselves down. So they need to they need to whittle that down and start focusing a little bit here. Yeah. But what but what do I know? I don't. Yeah. You're just. <laughs> yeah, I'm just a football player. Do you have time for TV? Do you have a streamed obsession you might watch right now? Yeah, I, I I love awful reality TV, like The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills or, or Below Deck. Below Deck. Yeah, I, I'm watching that now, Below Deck. Yeah, that's a great... Kate, like, I would love to hang out with Kate. She, the resting bitch face and the... Uh, I, I think we would, we, would get, we would get along great. Which fictional character would you like to meet in real life? Fictional character I'd like to meet in real life. Let's skip that one. I don't know. Who inspires you? Who inspires me? Jesus, these aren't little fun questions. These are deep. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like I get inspired by seeing a lot of little things, but I don't. There's not one person that I. It doesn't have to be a person. It could be a thing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm always encouraged when I meet with younger groups of of kids or like the football team here. When I stood in front of them and met with them, of just how open minded people are these days um the most unexpected people and um that gives me hope for you know this next generation even kind of in the state the country is right now politically but um just you know people are a lot more accepting and open than i ever thought what turns you on creatively spiritually or emotionally i'm a very competitive person um 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm motivated to succeed at things. Um, winning is a lot of fun. Yeah, sound like Trump saying winning, but I just, uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, 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 you know, I always, if I'm going to do something, I strive to, to do it, you know, the best. What turns you off? Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> I immediately went to people and traits in my mind, but um, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, I can't stand people that are dishonest, um, people that can't communicate. Um, let's go with that. What is your favorite curse word? Fuck. It's a word with many meanings. It really, though, and it just slips out sometimes, and yeah. What sound or noise do you love? What sound do I love? Um... A slot machine, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. Um, what, I should say something funny, like the grinder sound. No. Um, yeah, I, uh, yeah. I, I don't know why a slot machine came to my mind, but I've always had a lot of fun in Vegas, and yeah, I, that might be a weird answer, but there's no wrong answer. What sound or noise do you hate? Yelling. I hate when people yell. Like I grew up with a lot of people that screamed and yelled and that, I think that goes to when people can't communicate. I can't stand when people just scream. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I think I would be damn good at commercial real estate. Really? What makes you think that? Uh, I have friends that have done it and they've been very successful at it. I, I'm into, I'm into, not, not architecture because I don't want to like design buildings, but I, I'm, I'm, I know something about it intrigues me, um, getting a deal together and, uh, yeah. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say at the pearly gates? Welcome. My final question is this, Ryan. One of the reasons why I do this podcast is to help young kids who might be struggling with the same thing, coming to terms with their own sexuality. Yeah. So if you can travel in time and tell 12-year-old you, what's that one thing that comes to your mind? What's that first thought? that you would tell yourself to help you to avoid these dark thoughts you had? Yeah, first thing that comes to mind is to tell myself to just be myself, don't be apologetic about it, and have faith that the people around you and the rest of the world will accept you, and if they don't, they'll come around at some point. Ryan, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, there you go. Season two, episode one, done. Hope you enjoy my time with Ryan. It was a great conversation. I really recommend you get his book. He has so much more info to share, so many uh, details of the stories we talked about, and so many other stories you're going to want to hear for yourself. The book comes out September 3rd. Get it on Amazon, Barnes Noble, wherever you get your, your books. I believe an audio version is coming out as well eventually. Um, more info on that at his foundation website and on Facebook. Links will be in the show notes. Next week, I have Dale Scott, former Major League umpire. Can't wait to share that story. Until then, have a great week.